Good morning. Our um, Bible reading this morning is Psalm 73. Um, I'll be reading from the NIV version, and um, I'm sure it'll be up the back, or if not, it's in your flyer, your handout. Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence, for their callous hearts, from their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. <clears throat> Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure, and I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply, till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors? They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Thank you so much for that. Um, please keep your Bibles open or... Uh I think it's on the printout in front of you, so have that handy and we'll have a look at this passage together. Uh, one of the classes I teach at college is a class on sin. It's good for college students to learn about sin. And one of the things I tell them is that sin is awesome. Sin is totally awesome. It's great. And if you don't get that, you will never understand people who sin. And you will actually never understand yourself either. You see, no one sins as the result of a kind of rational, logical process going, you know, I've worked through uh, these various views and positions and arguments and I've come to the conclusion that sin's actually not that bad, therefore I'll go out and do it. Now, some people do that after the fact. They make a post hoc rationalisation of their sin. But no one does that before the fact. The reason people sin is because sin is awesome, Right? That's why people go out to clubs and drink too much and take drugs because at the time it feels great. 
That's why people have illicit sexual relationships. They don't go dragging their heels in. They go, because it's great. It satisfies them. It gives them a thrill. That's why people amass money to themselves and keep wealth and build up their own little kingdoms because they love it. Look at all the stuff I've got. If you don't get that sin is great, you'll never get people and you'll never understand the gospel either. It's not good enough just to say that, oh no, sin's bad. Sin's just, we don't like sin. It's, it's, it's not something we do around here. Without acknowledging that actually there's a struggle to resist sin, that sin has an attraction, there's a lure about it that's real. What we find in Psalm 73 is the psalmist asking this question and acknowledging this reality. The psalmist is saying, why not sin? Why not do the wrong thing? He's not asking it though kind of, arrogantly or, or hum, uh, uh, sorry, high-handedly. He's actually asking it humbly. He's asking it as a, a real wrestle, a holy struggle. He's acknowledging, he kind of knows this is a taboo thought. Like, I probably shouldn't really even think this, but the reality is there is an attraction there. There is a lure there. So why wouldn't I go down that path? And it's actually profoundly helpful to us as we get to, as it were, think his thoughts after him and uh, learn through God's grace about how sin can be resisted and ought to be without denying its deep attractiveness. He starts off at the beginning of the psalm stating something that he knows to be true about God and his people. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is his baseline. He knows the truth. He knows that this is the reality. But it's from this saying, well, I know this. I know this is true. Of course, this is true. But, however, uh, my feet almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. Knowing that, I still nearly ended up in a bad place. That is to say, my head knows this, but my heart is different. Or my heart was different. And it's a great kind of recognition from the top that heads and hearts can be out of whack. And that it's a mistake to think of people as just brains on sticks. If you think the right thing, then you'll never do the wrong thing. Now, you can think the right thing and still be drawn to the wrong thing, as the psalmist was. So what he does in verse 2 and verse 3, he puts his struggle squarely on the table. Uh, My feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold. Why? Because I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. That is, I'm a person of God, I know what's right, but I looked at people who aren't and I envied them. I saw their prosperity. What they had, I wanted. It looked good to me. I can see that there's an upside to sin. And more than that, they seem to get away with it most of the time too. There doesn't seem to be any consequences for sin as I look at these people. And he catalogues what he sees from uh, verse 4, which starts with, they have no struggles, their bodies are healthy and strong, uh, right down to verse 12, which it says, this is what the wicked are like, always carefree, they increase in wealth. And in those verses, what he really shows is this, this picture of people who, who do well for themselves, whose lives are going pretty good, who are healthy and fit and prosperous and have all the stuff they want. 
it might be that uh, in the original context of this psalm, the psalmist is looking out at the other nations like Babylon or Assyria. It doesn't really matter. That The point's the same. He sees people living great lives and he's envious of them. Now he notes as well as he goes through those verses that yes, the, the benefits that they get from these wicked lives often do come at the cost of other people. You know, they clothe themselves with violence. Um, they scoff and they speak with malice. They threaten oppression. So they live this way and other people often pay the price for it. But they themselves seem to be doing pretty well. And as I said before, it doesn't seem to be many consequences for this. Uh, verse 11, uh, they say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? God doesn't seem to pay any attention to what's going on down here. We're fine with this. It's very different to what we read in other parts of the Bible. It's very different, in fact, to the way the whole of the Psalter, the book of Psalms, opens up. Psalm 1 is very clear on this. Uh, people who live well, their lives will go well. People who live sinfully, the wicked people, uh, they'll be judged. It's pretty straightforward. And yet, this psalm is a counterpoint to that. A bit like if you know the wisdom books in the Old Testament. Uh, some of the wisdom books, like Proverbs, for example, seem to say, live well and life will be good and live badly and you'll be in trouble. But then you get to books like Ecclesiastes, where the writer goes, well, why do the people who live badly seem to actually do really well? Similar thing, of course, to what we see in the New Testament. Uh, there are people who are wealthy and people who are prosperous and who have abundance, who are people who ignore God, who are high-handed towards him. So this psalm is addressing that kind of situation. Perhaps the modern-day example of these wicked people, what comes to our mind is, well, it's kind of like the professional criminal who evades the law. You know, they set their own rules, they do what they want, and they get what they want. Or perhaps it's like the, the corrupt politician or the corrupt business person. They, they do the wrong thing, they're corrupt, but they still climb to the top of the social ladder and they're above everyone else in the community. Or maybe it's like the dodgy tradie who does a pretty ordinary job and overcharges and they end up actually being pretty cashed up while you're left with a dud repair job at your home. Or maybe it's like the selfish middle class person who cheats on their tax or doesn't mention an error that went in their favour as they were uh, paying for something or receiving something. And they live a pretty easy, comfortable life with lots of extra little trimmings. And they think, that's okay, everyone does this. Just uh, picks up those few little bonuses from the mistakes of others or things that other people overlook. The honesty of the psalmist is great. He says, this kind of living is attractive. Who wouldn't want to be at the top of the pile? Who wouldn't want to have all the extra little perks around the side that uh, come from just ignoring this little rule and that little rule there and playing things in our own favour? And what I really want us to do, right at the beginning of looking at this passage, is to ask ourselves the question, do we recognise that temptation? Do we feel that lure of sin? Have we acknowledged that reality? A way you can do that to find out uh, where that sits for you, inside you, is to answer this question. Say, if there were no God, I would do this. And the very fact that it would be different to what I'm doing now says that 
there's a lure of something out there that I would like that I know is not right. Now, again, I'm not for a minute suggesting you do this. <laughs> I'm just suggesting you recognise this as a reality, as part of the human condition that all of us ought to wrestle with and that the psalmist is wrestling with. The honesty will help us know our weaknesses, which is a good thing in itself, because we know where we need to be particularly uh, cautious, but it also helps us to know ourselves as people too. Before we move on, and almost as a bit of a side note, I, just as I read this psalm, I felt there was a bit of a challenge for certainly people like me, and I wonder if people like others of us in here, in verses 3 to 5. Uh, verse 3 is that one that says, I envied the arrogant, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And verse 5 is, they're free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. I felt a bit of a challenge there because here's a group of people who are uh, well off, perhaps the beneficiaries of injustice, who live pretty comfortable lives. And it doesn't necessarily have to be that they're criminals or corrupt politicians or dodgy tradies or whatever it is. And I felt a little bit like, could this even be me? Could this even be me? You know, uh, I don't kind of fall in any of those first categories I mentioned, but, you know, do I wear clothes that come from sweatshops? Do I have a mobile phone made with conflict minerals? Do I create pollution that someone else who's poorer and in a, a less stable society is going to have to deal with the consequences of. That is, I'm not breaking laws, but, but am I living unjustly off the hardship of others? Do I do that? I think that's a hard question. You know, I, I, I might not break laws, but am I selfish with my time and my money, keeping them for me, not using them to bless others, to advance the cause of the kingdom? Now, this is very complex stuff, I think, because all of us are involved in a, a very intricate web of, a range of relationships in our society. Um, it's very hard to know where everything came from uh, in your wardrobe and in your cupboard uh, and how everything that you do impacts other people. But even though it's complicated, and even though questions like how generous am I and so on are subjective, it doesn't mean it's not a real question. It doesn't mean it still shouldn't be asked. You can't just say because something's complicated, it doesn't matter. And I just wonder for myself, do I need to think more about attending to these sorts of things? Do I need to do a bit of moral examination working through the social, broader social implications of the way I live? Do I need to repent? Do I need to change some patterns? You know, it might be fussy, it might be frustrating, you know, do I need to research where my coffee comes from and make sure it's not exploiting a worker somewhere down the line? Do I need to offset my flights, even though it costs a bit more money? Do I need to not always upgrade my IT just because the new model's available? Do I need to give more money to mission? Do I need to take some more chances evangelistically, even though those things make my life less comfortable? Well, all of those things honour God, of course. And they might be costly, but actually, that's the point of the psalm. Faithful obedience is costly, Looking, at, comparing that to those who don't seek to live sacrificially and faithfully for the benefit of others and the glory of God. That's less costly and more personally, immediately, 
beneficial. That's the challenge of the psalm. I think those verses 3 to 5 also challenge what could be in some of us a, a sort of subtle, latent moralism, uh, you know, meritorious thinking. That idea that actually, I think I'm probably not really a sinner because my life's going okay. You know, if there are uh, people who have really messy lives, well, that's probably the result of serious sin. You know, someone who's long-term unemployed, people who have broken families, an alcoholic. Well, all of those things are because they sinned. And so when we see those things, we know who the sinners are. And hey, it's not me. That's good, isn't it? Well, the psalm breaks that picture too. The New Testament breaks that picture too. Actually, the picture we get uh, in here and, and in lots of other parts of the scriptures is that it's for faithful people very often that life is hard, that things are in a mess, that comforts do not surround them. For faithful people, life can be hard and full of suffering while sinners actually live well. And so lead us, as the psalmist uh, was led, to perhaps sometimes envy them and to wrestle with what we know versus what we see and what we want. This is what happens in uh, verses 13 through 16. The psalmist really wonders about uh, his path and, and, and does the wrestling part of it. After having acknowledged the attraction of sin, verses 13 to 16, he then uh, goes through the wrestling part. It starts with, surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. What was the point of all this holy living? All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. But then the other side, verse 15, if I had said that I'll speak thus, that I'll say these kinds of things, well, then I actually would have betrayed your children, would have betrayed the children of God. And, and, and it's hard. As I tried to understand all of this, it was oppressive to me. The psalmist is wrestling with this. Why bother? Well, it would be unfaithful to God to, to think that way. And yet there it is. And this is a hard struggle for me. It's a question that I can't quite see the way out of. But notice that the psalmist is going through the question, not avoiding it, not ducking it, not pretending it isn't there. Until he arrives in the second half there of verse, uh, sorry, beg your pardon, in verse 17, until he arrives at this point. He said that, uh, I tried to understand this, it was oppressive to me, till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. The psalmist entered the sanctuary of God. Now, whether he did this uh, physically and actually entered the temple in Jerusalem, or whether it's really, uh, he's using metaphorical language here to say, I remembered the grandeur of God and the worship of God and the centrality of God and the sacrifices that are made by God's provision for me. It wasn't until I did that, went back to that place where the majesty and truth of God are known, that everything started to make sense again. Now, the equivalent place for us might be a, a place of worship, like our church, but I think more than that, it's probably also a disposition of worship, a mindset of worship, a spirit, a heart of worship, returning back to God humbly and seeing all that he's done for his people. It's a view that's particularly, I think, informed by 
the big picture of the scriptures, that, that panning back and looking at all that God has done in history, all that he's done since the beginning of creation, and seeing how my moment and my envy fits into that story. Because that story ends with God setting all things right. Even though now things might be out of whack, wicked people might prosper, and good people might struggle with uh, the envy of, of that, in the end, God will set that all right. It hasn't happened yet, but it will happen. And when it happens, it will be decisive and final and inescapable. When he entered the sanctuary of God, verse 17, I understood their final destiny. Not their current moment, their final destiny. I think there's a helpful parallel here with a chapter in the New Testament particularly. You might know the second letter that the Apostle Peter wrote, 2 Peter chapter 3. And in that chapter, Peter's dealing with this issue that for the Christians, they are being mocked, particularly for the hope they have in the return of Jesus. They're being mocked in the hope they have for how things will pan out in the end. And the people are mocking them, saying, Jesus is not really going to come. It's not really going to happen. And Peter reminds them, he is coming. He is coming. He will come. In fact, he says, those people are like the people back in Noah's day before the flood. People thought nothing would happen, and then the flood came. And it did happen. And it's going to happen again. And the reminder is to have a big picture of what God is doing over the sweep of history. Don't just be stuck in the moment when people are mocking, when you're feeling jealous of people who are better off, even though they reject the Lord. Know where it's all going. Know where this history is headed. In verses 22 and 23, I beg your pardon, 21 and 22 of our psalm, the psalmist again remembers what it's like not seeing the big picture and what sort of person it made him into. Verse 21, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. When you don't see what God is doing in the big picture, when you're ignorant, as verse 22 says, it's not good for you. You become bitter. You become like a brute beast, bitter and angry at God because I haven't got all the stuff that these other people have got. My life's not like theirs. Well, you've taken your eyes off the big picture. You've been ignorant of God's big plan when you think that way. It offends God, of course, and it doesn't actually bring us what we want anyway. It just makes us into people that we're not meant to be. But the big picture truth, of course, is better. Verse 23, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, again afterward, thinking of the future, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. See that perspective setting again? I'm looking to heaven. Who do I have in heaven apart from you? Earth has nothing I desire. There's lots of stuff I could want. There's lots of things I could be jealous of. But actually compared to God and the glory and the place he's taking me, none of those things are as important to me. I have nothing I desire. My flesh and my heart may fail. I might not have the great health of the wicked uh, who somehow seem to have life engineered so that they're safe and secure and prosperous. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is, my, is the strength of my heart and my portion 
not just now, but forever. Do you see the corrective that's being made here? You've got to see the big picture. You've got to see the large sweep of history and how we fit into it and how this moment is relativized by it. The big picture truth is better. God won't abandon us. God is good. This life can be full of struggles and jealousies and all kinds of hard things, but that's not how it's going to end. God will ultimately take his people to glory. God will be and God is our final rest and our final peace. Now, the psalmist got to all this after his wrestle, his struggle. I, I love the psalm because I love the honesty. I love that he went through that and, and wrestled with that and came to it. It should actually be easier for us. It should be easier for us. We live on the other side of the cross. We live on the other side of the coming of the Lord Jesus the first time. We know more than the psalmist knows. We, we have a fuller picture of history than the psalmist had. You see, after the Lord Jesus died on the cross, what happened three days later? He rose again. He rose to new life. And this is our snapshot of the eternity. This is our snapshot of the future that is to come. If you thought it was all pie in the sky when you die, if you thought, uh, who really knows what happens in the end, look to the resurrection of Jesus. That's what happens in the end. That's what happens after you die. What we see in the resurrection of Jesus is glorious life after mortal living is over. What we see in the resurrection of Jesus is vindication after suffering. Not a bypassing of suffering, uh, not a transformation of the mortal life so that it's all plush and comfortable, but something that comes after. The crown is after the cross. The resurrection is after the death. These are not just concepts for Christians. These are not just good kind of philosophical ideas, good ways of thinking that uh, hopefully will lead to uh, some kind of spur to action. This is our history. The point of the resurrection in the New Testament is we saw it. It was real. It was right before our very eyes. Uh, the language that the New Testament uses is that Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection, of the new creation, of all who will to come. That is, the harvest has started. It's not made up. It's begun. And if you have your eyes on that future, your eyes on the resurrection, if you follow the Lord Jesus, then that's your future too. The resurrection of Jesus is not just the curtain call on the cross. It's not like Jesus died on the cross for our sins, paid the penalty there for, for all that humanity had done wrong and for those who put their faith in him, uh, they have the, the forgiveness of their sins promised. And then afterwards, Jesus stood up and took a bow and said, thank you for that, and off he went. The resurrection is not just the curtain call on the cross. The resurrection is what comes at the end for those who follow the Lord through the life of struggling that may even involve carrying a cross to the point of death. That will certainly involve saying no to temptation and recognizing the lure and the attractiveness of sin, but not giving into it because your eyes aren't on the here and now. Your eyes are on then with him. The resurrection of Jesus is for all who follow him and it's coming. On that day when Jesus returns, we'll enter into that glory and share it with him. And the unrepentant wicked, even if they have lived well in this life, they'll meet justice on that day. So when will that day be? And why hasn't it come yet? The psalmist might ask. Why, why doesn't it happen now? Well, I actually think returning to 2 Peter 3 
again, uh, is helpful guidance for us on why not yet. Uh, What it says in that chapter is that God is being patient. God is being patient. That is, God is giving the wicked, the sinners, a chance to repent, a chance to also participate in that new resurrection life that will come at the end. God is being patient. That's the only reason that the sun keeps rising and the earth keeps spinning on its axis is because God is giving more people more time to turn to him in faith. Something similar, I think, we see at the end of the psalm. Uh, it looks like those last two verses are just a parallel summary. Here's the life of the, the, uh, those who are um, close to God and here's the life of those who are far from God. Uh, verse 27, those who are far from you will perish, ultimately. That's the conclusion. You'll destroy all who are unfaithful to you. Uh, as for me, on the other side of the coin, uh, one of God's people, it's good to be near the Lord. I have made the sovereign, sovereign Lord my refuge. It seems like that's just a sort of summary conclusion to the psalm, except for the very last little line after the colon there at the end. I will tell of all your deeds. I will tell of all your deeds. That is, the psalm doesn't just end with saying, well, in the end, God will sort us out into our two camps. It ends with saying, well, that's the case, but I will tell of all your deeds in the meantime. Why? Uh, Why? Well, to glorify God, to proclaim what he's done, because we're unashamed. And in fact, this is our boast, what he's done. We want people to know that this is the end he's bringing through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But also, so again, like 2 Peter 3, that some people might hear and repent. That some people who are currently in that group we might call the wicked, rejecting God and living their own lives through their own glory, building their own kingdoms, so that they might repent. Notice as well, this means the psalm leaves us not only with a different perspective on sin, not only with a different perspective on our own situation, but with a different perspective on the wicked, a different perspective on those who reject God. No longer jealousy, but now compassion. A desire to see them change their course so that their eternity is great, not just their present. The psalmist knows that God is their only hope, just as God is the psalmist's true peace. So now the psalmist says, I've wrestled with my my envy question, my sin question, my jealousy question, and the time has come to divert my attention from that and give my energy and my time and my resources to telling of the good deeds of God in order that those whom I was formerly jealous of I can now approach with compassion and God willing, they might be saved too. Now I want to invest my energy in telling about God's great saving works and pray that he would save those who I formerly wanted to be like but realise they need to be more like me in as much as I follow the Lord and I'm one of his people. Now of course we are the same, aren't we? This should be our attitude. We look out at those who don't know the Lord, not with envy, not with jealousy, but with compassion, hoping that they will have what we have one day, not because we've earned it, not that we're any better than them, but because we've responded to the good news of the gospel, that message of the resurrection, that message of the cross. And we want others to respond to the Lord in glory and to join us in glory in eternity. Let me pray.
Well, our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the honesty of the psalmist. And we thank you so much for helping us see that, yes, while there are many attractive things we could do in this world that would satisfy us here and now, ultimately, Lord, our fidelity to you is what leads us to a more glorious eternity. And we pray, Heavenly Father, you'd help us to uh, assess ourselves, to uh, understand our own jealousies, our own temptations, our own weaknesses. We pray you'd help us to see those around us who don't know you, and no matter for all the things they don't have, if they don't know you, they are poor and in need of the life-giving message of the Lord Jesus. And we pray that you'd help us to be people who tell of your good works, tell of the salvation, the resurrection that is with him. And we look forward to the last day. Please keep our eyes fixed there and praising you as we wait for it. Amen.